0: On this Survivor Stories series episode, our guest is Ashley, a survivor of intimate partner violence and coercive control, and a protective mom. Ashley is here to speak with us today about the dangers of technology and domestic violence. In particular, Ashley believes that her husband, from whom she is currently separated, had been cyber-stalking her through her computer. We address the impact the surveillance has had on her and review her order of protection court proceedings to examine the ways in which courts view abuse and cyber-stalking, uncover myths, and explore ways that our systems and players need to be updated and trained to provide appropriate responses to keep survivors and children safe. Throughout our conversation, Ashley uses SUNAT-NIMS for both herself and other members of her family. We also reference signs of abuse, abuser tactics, and upstander tips. Welcome, Ashley. Hello. Thank you for joining us on our show to give our listeners some context to your relationship and how it got to its current point. You're in the middle of a divorce proceeding and soon to be uh, heading into a trial later this year. Could we start first with just historically, when did you meet?
1: We met about eight years ago. We met on a blind date and we dated for about Between two and three years before we got married and started having children right away.
0: And you got married approximately 2012? Approximately. And your firstborn son, Henry, came soon after your marriage. Is that right? Correct. Were there any signs during the pregnancy or soon after you were married that alarmed you? Any red flags?
1: In hindsight, yeah, there... There definitely were red flags while we were dating, particularly the closer we got to um, the wedding and immediately after we got married um, is when the more serious i shouldn't even say more serious, but when um, the more blatant abuse started yeah it's so there there were there were quite a few. the course of control aspects really started after we got married, and well, I should say after i got after I got pregnant and uh, we were fortunate enough that um, we were in a position that I could afford to leave my my job when the baby arro- arrived, and so I did, and that that is when the blatant abuse started.
0: That happens a lot in relationships when a partner gets pregnant or when after the baby is born, there's an escalation potentially in jealousy and how the time perceived to be spent more with a child and less with the partner Uh, Has on the potentially ego of the abuser is that something that you observed as well?
1: Oh, definitely, without a doubt. Um, The pregnancy definitely triggered an escalation, and the birth definitely, um, definitely triggered an escalation as well, without a doubt. Without a doubt. After Henry was born, he began using the child again as a weapon, and almost immediately, yeah, it was. It was. There was a couple of pretty terrifying events when Henry was a newborn.
0: Were those when he became physically threatening?
1: Well, the first time he got physical with me was while I was still pregnant. He would start arguments. Is it, well, it would say they would sound like arguments to an outside person. But in looking back, they were I don't even know what to call them. They were they were just rants and he was it was just like constant attacks against me for anything from my value system to, you know, my previous work history just constantly berating me and he'd follow me throughout the house and I'd try to get away and try to try to walk away try to walk away and he would follow me and um during this particular incident he cornered me in um one of the bedrooms and when I tried to leave he he pushed me into the door frame and again that was I was I was pregnant during the time and you know was able to turn my body so that he didn't push my belly into the door but I ended up with a bruise on my hip and unfortunately you know That was the first instance of physical of a physical altercation, and um, I wasn't thinking very clearly at the time. Like, and I should have taken a picture of it, but I didn't. (laughs) You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty with these incidents or with these things. But yeah, so that was the first time. And
0: you were struggling to find a word. I wanted to um, suggest this one to you. Would you consider it a taunt? Because that's a word that's used often to describe when abusers verbally try to escalate a situation and include gaslighting techniques.
1: That is a great, a great word for it. Yes.
0: Okay. After your older son was born, how did that impact your perception of the relationship? And when these coercive controlling behaviors started to appear more frequently, did you have at the time the tools to unpack what was happening or was there other things going on?
1: There, I had, um, I had some tools, I, you know, I was very lucky, like, years earlier when I was in school, um, I was able to take um, a psychology of women course, and they covered domestic violence in that course. So I had, from that, I had a very basic understanding and, you know, picked up on some of the, um, some of the things that were going on. I had a few friends that also recommended that I, I talk to somebody at a local domestic violence shelter to help kind of figure out how to cope and deal with things. And also gave me, um, through that shelter, I got the names of a few local attorneys to help figure out how I could possibly go forward. Because one of his most common threats were, and this is going to sound very familiar to quite a few survivors out there, but he was going to (laughs) throw me out of the house. And take the children, or the child at the time, and make sure that I'd never see them again. Though the threats were always along those lines. It was, you know, he was going to throw me out of the house and take the kids. And what shocked me at the time, after talking to a number of different attorneys, family law attorneys, was that there was a very good chance that he would succeed at doing that. Especially given my employment status at the time, because I wasn't employed, and as often is, there was a great, there's a significant difference in our income levels. And yeah, so it was, it was pretty shocking at the time to find out that that threat had some real teeth and that at the end throughout our relationship that he, he threatened that regularly. And it's always been a reason why I stayed as long as I did, because I knew that if I tried to leave, that um, my children would be at greater risk.
0: So just to provide some context also to our listeners for later when we delve into the most recent court transcripts and hearings on your domestic violence protection order, at some point during that time before you had decided that you were going to leave, before you filed for your divorce, or actually, sorry, your, hu- your husband filed for divorce, before he filed for divorce, uh, at some point you started recording your, these altercations. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, very, very early on um, after talking to some of the um, family law attorneys and also the domestic violence shelter, I started recording soon, I mean, just a few months after we were married um, while I was still pregnant. So I was able to get, they, they told me that it's very, very hard to prove any kind of abuse and that courts very often don't want to hear about it. And so you have to get pretty substantial evidence before they'll even even remotely consider it. And so I I have um, evidence going back through from almost the beginning of the marriage. What was
0: the turning point if you had been living with this fear for so many years that led you to decide, I don't want to be in this situation anymore and make a move?
1: Well um, the the decision to not want to be the realization of the decision to not want to be in the situation anymore that that happened years years before I was a, that before um, the separation happened. I, I've listened to a number of your podcasts and I, and I do love them and I just remember the is it Louise Rachel Louis Snyder? Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah so she made the statement that leaving is a process and not an event mm-hmm. And I would say that my process lasted years and is, you know, still ongoing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're still not free or out yet. So, well, my children, and I, should, I should say, we're still not safe. And I think as far as what really elevated it to the point of was really when he started to physically go after the kids themselves, he would, my uh, Henry was on about two, not quite two the first time that, that he went after him, after our son, and um, there were a number of times that I'd have to intervene and you know jump in the middle of them to keep Henry from getting hurt. And um, that was really when I needed to start documenting more about what he was doing to the children. And that is what started the, the main, I should say, cascade of events of us actually getting, actually separating. And that happened, that started few years before anybody actually started taking that abuse against the children seriously. And so you left
0: your marital home with the kids in April of 2018. Is that right? Uh,
1: Approximately.
0: At what point did you apply for a temporary restraining order from your husband?
1: It was not quite a year after we separated. As a lot of your listeners will know, when you separate from an abuser, if you have children, the children become the main avenue of their continued abuse. And that was, it's been true in our case as well. And he would use the, the children, the kids as a way to get information about me, about my whereabouts, my location. And he would use the communication that the systems in place, they, they really want parents to communicate. And he would use that as an opportunity to, you know, send subtle threats, to send subtle messages that that I could very easily pick up on, knowing, you know, the background and the things that have happened when nobody else was around. You know, I, I knew what he was doing. I knew what he was saying, like actually saying, um, but to an outside observer, um, they would look like pretty benign communications. And he would tell me things that really made me wonder how he knew things like how you know how did he know what we were watching on tv we live we live a ways away there's there's just no way that he could have known what we were say watching on TV or you know whether or not we left the house that day or you know things things like that that make you wonder how how did he know these things like does he have someone following me does he have my car tra- is he tracking my car is he somehow hacked into my phone like what like how does he know these things and that led me to well combining the fact that he had been sending threats with the children and they weren't these threats weren't being taken seriously Between these two things, it led me to seek out a forensic specialist, and they talked to me about some of the things that could be going on and could happen, and so they... I had my car checked for GPS trackers, for mics, for bugs. I mean, you know, for surveillance equipment. And they did the apartment, and they did they did a couple of other places as well. And they decided to do a sweep of my home network and my computer. And that is when they discovered the spyware. And it took a little while longer for them to get to the bottom of what was actually happening um, and what. What kind of software it was, and what the capabilities were, but when we found out what that actually was it was it was it was pretty significant so after your
0: forensic specialist identified that there was spyware on your computer, you filed for a temporary restraining order
1: i did it um it took a little bit of time simply because. They needed to do a little bit more digging to find out when the spyware was planted and, you know, what kind of information he was able to get from that spyware. And they, when we found, had more information, I was able to a, a file for a temporary restraining order for the cyber stalking.
0: Let's go back a little bit. You referenced that your husband, from whom you're separated, he was able to share tidbits of information that made you suspicious that there might be something going on. And that was through a parent app. Is that correct? Correct. This is a parent app that many people in the court system use.
1: Um, yeah, there's there's a few different apps. Um, there's one that's called Talking Parents. Um, there's another called Our Family Wizard. And I think there's one more that the name escapes me.
0: I've spoken to friends and survivors who have been required by court to use those apps, and there's a mixed reaction. Some of them feel like it's helpful because it, it documents formally to the court if there could be any kind of abuse, if there's taunting, for example, or verbal abuse coming through that communication channel. But that only helps if, in theory, people from the court are able to access it. So, for example, a mediator is able to access it for the survivor that I know. In your case, when the court, I guess they ordered a use of one of these apps, or was it suggested, did they provide any kind of enforcement and guidelines as to its use so that it wouldn't be abused and
1: misused? No, they really haven't, if anything... They, there's been a number of times where he has blatantly insulted me or my family or my friends, or in messages. And the system has to care, right? And a I've noticed a big, a big issue in our situation is that people are the people in the the um, that are involved are just their attitude is it, it they minimize it and they just think oh this is just an ugly divorce, and it is, <laughs> but. It's ugly for a reason, right it's um not necessary I mean it him insulting my friends it it has absolutely nothing to do with the children right so I, I try to make, keep my communication simply about you know what's going on with the kids and with their schedules and with their appointments and you know he'll he'll fire back with you know again you know insults or insults on my appearance and you know things that really don't matter but The issue is, is that we can use these apps all we want, but the system has, the courts and the guardian line, like the players, they have to care. And that's, that's one of the things that's very lacking in my situation, but also in many, many other people's situation is just the belief that it's, this is just part of divorce. And it, and and on some levels, maybe it is, but when it gets to this extreme, I would I would hope that somebody would take notice and say, Hey, this this isn't right but that doesn't seem to happen.
0: I guess in your case, even if someone had the training to identify the dialogue that was taking place between the two of you and suspect that, that there was this information, like if you had gone to someone like mediator, let's say, and said, you know, this this communication is making me nervous because there's statements that I, I know that our children did not share. And I'm wondering where he could have gotten that information, the court certainly would not have put in the resources to have hired a forensic expert to support your claim. And so you still would have had to go out and do the same thing, unfortunately. Um, But but at least they could have had the seed planted that there was something askew, you know, in the situation.
1: Right. And in in our situation, too, the the messages that he would send were so subtle that unless you knew the situation very, very well, you know, you wouldn't pick up on it. That's another problem is a lot of these, you know, subtle threats. They are very, very subtle and fly under the radar to people who aren't don't have a, a, um, a very good knowledge base. Yeah. And then if I bring it up, you know, they accuse me of being paranoid, like, oh, he would never do that. Or um, he seems to, you know, we talked to him about that and he seems to understand that that would be wrong. Um, my response to that is always like, yes, he knows it's wrong. He's still doing it. <laughs> he's he's doing it knowingly. Like that's that's all you uncovered. <laughs> but again, they just assume that I'm being paranoid and they, they just don't see the same danger level as I do because they they don't believe these things happen as often as they do. Um you know again it's a lack of training. It's um it's a a a belief in a lot of domestic violence myths. It's uh it's a pretty big problem for quite a few people.
0: Speaking of myths, let's get to your court hearings. You had provided me two transcripts of the court dates where you had court hearings on the subject matter only of whether or not you would be granted a a restraining order uh, based on cyber stalking claims that you had provided to the court. And so I want to read the definition of what the threshold is and what the definition of domestic violence that was given by the court commissioner in your case. It says, domestic abuse is defined as the following, it is the intentional infliction of or threat to inflict physical pain, physical injury or illness, impairment of a physical condition, damage to personal property, or sexual contact or sexual intercourse without consent. And it also includes the definition of stalking. So I want to stop there. What do you think of this definition of domestic abuse?
1: I think that it does not go far enough to really um, consider the dynamics of what abuse truly is. It it completely leaves out the concept of coercive control, and coercive control is a much better indicator of what actual violence is going on and what the real danger is. And I also thought it was interesting that it was pretty clear that we were there for the stalking aspect of our um, statute's. Um, domestic violence definition and right from that get-go like they weren't really acknowledging what the statute said about stalking and that was one thing right that really (laughs) worried me right off the bat when the whole thing started in the hearing
0: one of the things that i want to jump to is that you hired this it expert this technology security expert Mm -hmm. and this gentleman was confirmed as an expert and stipulated by both sides. So there was no argument or disagreement, in other words, as to his expertise. Is that correct? That's correct. And then he proceeded to testify about his work for you. Uh, You had mentioned earlier that there was a sweep of your car, et cetera, and that he had done a preliminary and then a deeper diagnostic into your laptop which was determined to have been found with this tracking software
1: so they found um a program that's um it's a type of program called a keylogger um and this program was capable of doing much more than just recording what keys were <laughs> keys were typed in um it was capable of recording Logins and passwords. It was record able to take screenshots. It was of whatever you were doing online, and it was capable of turning on the microphone and the compu- and the, the camera, and um, taking recording video. Um, it was capable of intercepting all sorts of other information. It was also because he was able to get the logins and passwords, he was able to very easily get into my phone and um, all of the backup information in my phone. And um, again, I have to reiterate that if you're Apple or Android, it doesn't make that much of a difference because this is possible very easily on both platforms with both types of devices. But there are many different kinds of key loggers out there, and most of them are very, very, some of them are very cheap and some of them are free. But they have the ability to get a lot of information from your activities online and from anything that you have stored on your computer or phone.
0: When you first heard from him, when he informed you that he had found this tracking software, how did you feel?
1: I was terrified. I felt it was... was, scary to know what he could have what kind of information he could have been getting and what how how he could have been tracking me and the complete and utter I mean it was I felt violated that was another big um, emotion because it's you we assume that we're safe in our own homes and I, I still to this day I I am nervous about how I am, you know, things when I'm home, like that I still have the um I still keep all the blinds drawn and the curtains drawn. it's It's had a pretty significant impact on me. And yeah, so it was very scary to know all of the things that I mean, just from the initial the initial find, it was very scary to know the information that he could have gotten from, I mean, being able to listen in through my computer, being able to to, see into my apartment through the computer. Also later found out that he was able to hack into my TV and uh, people may or may not know that many smart TVs have listening capabilities and also cameras in them. So he was able to see into my living room whenever he wanted. And that was very scary to me. Being able to track a person through their cell phone number Um, I found out that the only way to stop that would be to turn your phone off and take the battery out um, so that they can't track you by your phone number. And so if I were to go visit um, my advocate at the shelter, I would have to do that before I left the house um, so that they didn't know that whoever was tracking me didn't know that I left or where I was going. Um, Because there, there had been a number of times where he did track me going to the shelter and that You know, that also strikes me as a bit of an irony, because if you have to do that, if you have to turn your phone off to make and take the battery out to be untrackable through your phone, um, that's also a prime time for someone to attack. Right. Because like if the bad guys can't track you, that means the good guys can't either. Right. So if something were to happen to me, then, you know, how would they how would the police find me if my phone was off? Just another complicating factor for people to consider as they're uh, navigating the um, the safety of separation.
0: How many years ago did the security expert determined that the software had been I- implemented into your laptop?
1: It was over over two years from the time that we had separated. So going back to the coercive control aspect of it, um, my my husband was able to really gauge the, the effectiveness of his abuse, because he could, you know, go on his, his taunts and rants in the morning and, abu- you know, go on verbal, verbal abuse tirades in the morning. And then he could listen to me talk to a friend about, about it later, about how upset I was. Like he would, he would be able to actually gauge his, the effectiveness. And looking back, it really, at that time frame like there was definitely a shift in, some of the tactics he would use during that time, like after he had planted that software. Was the timing
0: of when he, when he allegedly planted the software, did it coincide with anything in particular that happened in your relationship where you might have wanted to file for divorce or you had wanted, you know, wanted to do something that would have asserted your independence and threatened his domination over you?
1: Yeah, it did. Um, there was a few different things that happened. There was a I just need to board this carefully. Um, there was a change in my employment status. And um and that would have given me potentially some financial independence to be able to get away. And also, um, as my children got a little older, it would have been easier for me to get away as well. And those were two of the um it also coincided with some medical issues at the time as well.
0: Uh, that you or your children were having?
1: I would say both.
0: <laughs> Just jumping back, like when you, when you were talking about first discovering that your computer had been hacked, basically, my thoughts were it, it's, it's almost like women who are secretly recorded having sex with their partners, and then their partners, without their permission, putting those recordings online and making it available to the public. Not to mention, if you were further violated, if you were sexually assaulted, and having those done. That was the level of violation that I was thinking about.
1: Yeah, and it was, you know, after one of my children was born, I, as many people do, I had a lot of body image issues with my new, my my new uh, mom body. (laughs) And I did a couple of people suggested, oh, you should do a a boudoir shoot. And that would, you know, boost my self esteem to see my, myself in, you know, in in lingerie and looking wonderful. And um, so I did that. And those images were on my laptop, and they were among um, some of the documents that he did steal from my laptop. And so that is a very real possibility that he could release those or has already released them. And um, yeah, so that's, that's another thing that I'm worried about still, still today.
0: Getting back to the IT experts' discoveries, um, I want to dig into this. This was all in the transcripts. The IT expert and his supervisor actually were at your home one day looking at your laptop. What happened?
1: the laptop the camera was activated and the software sent from what we could tell it sent a notification that it had been found that was very scary to know because i the very next day this so we found this this program pretty late at pretty late at night and the first thing i did the next morning was contact my domestic violence advocate and she told me to come in right away She stopped me before I got into too many details on the phone. She said, you'd need to come in right away and today, as soon as possible. And I did, I went in and this is when it really hit home about how dangerous the situation had become because I had conversations with, with her and, you know, gave her more of the details, but it was her, a, a domestic violence advocate. She's had, you know, years of training, years of experience in this. And it was also a member of the high risk team and, also a member of another advocate from another department that, um, I'm not going to disclose at this time, but, um, I had conversations that day with three separate experts about what happened and what my risk was. And, you know, they had, they gave me all sorts of information as far as how to, how to improve my safety and how basically how not to get, how not to get murdered. (laughs) They told me if, Somebody were to... They, first, they told me not to go back to my home alone, and they told me that I should not stay there. They told me that I should not sleep in the same place every night for a given period of time. They told me that I should try to switch out my vehicle as much as possible, which, you know, given the fact that I have children with with our abuser, I, it really... That wouldn't have made any difference because we had daily exchanges at that time. So he would know exactly where I was going to be at least two different times during the day, during the week. And so he could have just, you know, had had somebody watching me then and finding out what new vehicle I'm driving. Right. So that was a piece of advice I couldn't take. But, you know, I had to have the police go with me back to my apartment to pack a bag um, and get my pets so that we could. You know, basically go into hiding for a few weeks. And that was pretty scary to know. And that that wasn't even that wasn't even the final, es- no, I shouldn't say final escalation. That wasn't even the last escalation. There, there were issues that came after that too. But that was a very, very surreal moment to have as particularly a member from the the high risk team tell me how, you know, tell me all these things. The other advice they tell me if, if somebody breaks into um, my home to stay out of the bathroom and stay out of the kitchen, you know, wear in the house to plant cell phones, and um, that I mean the, those kind of safety planning to to basically plan for getting attacked is pretty scary. It's it
0: appears from what you're saying that a lot of the quote unquote tips that were given require financial resources and time, obviously, um, but certainly financial resources to be switching out into different homes and cars and buying extra cell phones. So it's not really something that's an option for every victim and survivor. Where, was Absolutely. it an option for you to be able to implement all of those suggestions or just partial?
1: Um, some of them I was able to do simply because I, I was able to find either old cell phones from other friends or family that were able to help. But, you know, uh, one of the challenges I did run into was trying to find places to stay because the shelters were either full or um, when I would go, they, you know, they do a screening to see if you're eligible or not. And if you have any kind of resources, they won't allow you to stay there. So... I had enough where I didn't always qualify, but I didn't always have the places to stay either. and thankfully, I had some friends that were brave enough to support me through that, but sadly, some of them weren't. and I respect their decision. Um, they didn't want they knew that I was at risk. they knew I was a target and they didn't want me around their children staying at their house because um you know they were afraid of the risk that that I would bring into the house and Sad as that is, I do, I do acknowledge that because if the tables were turned, I'd be thinking the same thing for the safety of my children. But thankfully, I did have family and friends that were brave enough to do that. Um, I also um, was able to, on days where I did not have my children um, with me, I was able to find um, other, other resources and other places I could go, try to keep, a, keep myself as a moving target, I guess. But it was, it was a pretty traumatic, um, pretty traumatic experience. I want to get back to what
0: the IT expert discovered uh, in your laptop. So can you talk about how many gigabytes of storage, if you remember, that he discovered was extracted from your laptop? And approximately how many individual items they were and what what the nature of those items were that were accessed?
1: Yeah, there was... Um, Over 18,000, I'm sorry, over, yeah, over 18 gigabytes worth of data, Um, there were well over 10,000 documents and images that were taken from the computer over the time, and including, there were emails that were intercepted, emails specifically um, between myself and my attorneys. So if you think about the impact that could have on on your family case, you know, that's pretty significant. Um, there was, you know, protected communication between myself and my domestic violence advocates. There was, you know, messages um, between, you know, in private conversations on Facebook and other, you know, other other platforms. There were photos that were taken, you know, going back to um, there was photos and documentation of the abuse um, going back years. And some of those, that documentation was was found to have been deleted. Taken by him, and again, you know, this the same software program. It could, <laughs> it could take my passwords, so he had access to all of my online accounts, and it was it was pretty frightening to find out the the depth of what he was able to do and find out about me. How was the
0: IT expert able to identify the source of the hacking into your laptop?
1: I don't know what what how he did it, um, but he was able to track the The access to my computer to um, an IP address. and so he was able to track the the data feed, if you will, of where the documents were being sent to and where the you know where the the um, information from the camera um, and the microphone, where that information was being sent to. So he um, was able to track the data feed and he was able to track the um the access point. so whoever, was doing it was um, doing it from a specific IP address. And so he was able to find that IP address. And then through public means, he was able to determine the GPS location of that IP address. And um, it turned out that the IP address that was accessing my, my computer was my husband's home and my husband's place of employment. So he was spying on me from his house and also spying on me from his while he was working. It was pretty surreal to find that out. And so when I was reading the transcripts,
0: one of the things that the court commissioner used to justify eventually denying you the um, order of protection was, number one, that the tracking software was still on the computer after the diagnostic was done, and and you had testified that you had changed the Wi-Fi router and the IP address, but you left everything on because it was evidence. And I thought that that made sense. Could you delve into that further?
1: I, I mean, when we found out about the, the software, I, I immediately stopped using the laptop. And one of the things that the one of the advocates told me right, right during that first meeting um, after we found it, was don't delete anything, don't use the laptop, and don't change anything because that that's evidence. And so, if I were to delete the program, that would be seen as you know tampering with evidence. And what happened? What he I mean, what he did was technically a crime. On on the state level, but also the federal level. And if I did anything to the laptop, that could be um, detrimental to any possible criminal case.
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me, um, because we don't know what's going to happen and how it may be used later. Uh, And it it reminded me of, you know, this is a Bad analogy, but the the blue dress with Bill Clinton, right? And right. Um, and so if there's DNA on something, you wouldn't you wouldn't wash it. You, you're not going to wear it again, but you're going to keep it because you never know if it's going to be needed again in its right. in, exactly. in its intact form. Um, right. So to me, that didn't make sense at all. And then another thing that she said, which I found to be very troubling was she didn't really give any weight to the fact that the IP addresses came from two locations that were your husband's home and work, and that verifiably um, you would not have any access to. And, and yet, to me, that seemed like very, very strong infor- very strong factual information to Provide, let's say, I don't know what the standard is preponderance of evidence that there was violation into your security and privacy and stalking. and And yet she didn't really think that was a big deal,
1: yeah. I think the other thing is too, is that she came back with, well, this just belongs in family court. and in. What was also interesting, it just, I was left with the impression that she just didn't understand how the internet worked. And I also thought it was interesting that, and this happened off the record in when I originally filed for it, the original commissioner, she said, a a, a separate commissioner than this one, she said that, she said, well, you have a family law case going on right now. And Like, this is just going to look like you trying to get a leg up in custody in the custody battle. And I responded to her on the spot that, how do you think him intercepting every email between my attorney and I, and how do you, like, how would that affect the custody battle? Like, how is it okay for him to use illegal spyware to get information, (laughs) to get a leg up in the custody battle, but... I am not allowed to use my rights to safety the how, how
0: and here's a better analogy for you it's like watergate <laughs> if <Right>. if, you're, <laughs> if you're if you're if you're going to be spying on the other side and you know what their strategy is that's how you win and nixon did it for an election and he got caught and he and literally you know the the expert in your case testified that undoubtedly the two locations that were accessing your laptop and all the documents that were accessed and data over the course of several years came from your husband's home and work location.
1: Right. During times where I had evidence that I was nowhere near those locations, like that, that it's not physically possible for it to have been me. That's true. and I'm, I'm Yeah, I'm glad you're adding that. The other thing is too, is that the the expert was able to find out what kind of device was being used to access my system and it just happened to be the same type of device that my husband owns and so there's all these details that really add up to it really was him and that's that's and then on top of it you know he had the motive they accused me of planting it and you know that this is just me trying to get back at him and it's but at the same time like they're ignoring the fact they ignored the fact had no history in my in the computer of me accessing those websites during the times that <laughs> he was and it baffled me that that we lost that and i found out later from uh, another source that the the bailiff was at that hearing was absolutely floored. And, you know, my domestic violence advocate was there and she was shocked that it was denied. And my attorney told me as well after the fact that he was shocked because he had prosecuted people on successfully prosecuted people on less evidence than what we had. It, it was it was baffling to tell you the truth, but it was undeniable the The fact that the domestic violence myths played a big role in why it was denied and the, again, the lack of training uh, of, the, of the commissioner involved.
0: Uh, I want to ask you about some of those myths. So one of the things that the court commissioner pointed to as a rationale for disbelieving the source of the tracking and infringement on your privacy was the fact that she, she in my interpretation made a false equivalence to someone installing tracking software on your computer and accessing 12,000 pages of 18 gigabytes of information over the course of, what was it, four years by now, right? Is that Well over. Yeah. yeah, well over four years. And from definite locations that your husband lived and worked at, and as you said, with a motive to You're having admitted that you made audio recordings of your fights, which is a very, very common thing for survivors to do to um, have proof that there's fear and terror and and uh, evidence of um, the intimidation. So to me, that was very telling, a telling sign of someone who didn't understand domestic violence. What were your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I mean... She, it seemed to me that she confused the issue of, I believe they called it eavesdropping during the hearing, but most, most places, um, including where I live is a one party state. And so, I mean, you know, we talk about how you have to have documentation of abuse in order to prove it, but it's so hard because so much of it happens without witnesses, you know, behind closed doors, you know, at home. And, you know, there really was no other way to prove what was going on. And I'm not exactly proud of the fact that I had to do that, but I didn't have any other options. I didn't have any other choices. And at the end of the day, they didn't even take any of it seriously anyway. So, I mean, I have, oh gosh, well over 20 hours of, of evidence, um, between audio and video and, including other witnesses that had seen other incidences. And so far, none of it has really mattered. And that's been pretty pretty upsetting.
0: I wanna also differentiate that putting tracking devices on someone's laptop is a proactive act versus your recording in moments of uh, fear as a reactive act in self-defense in some ways. Would you agree with that?
1: I, I would agree with that entirely. There's a very big difference in it. I mean, the thing is, is that I never would have had to have done that had I not needed to to have that information. <laughs> if I wasn't in an abusive situation, if I didn't have to have have that proof, I wouldn't have done that to begin with. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. It's just, it's so hard. They make it so hard <laughs> to, to show some of what happened. And it definitely has been um, a challenging situation, to say the least.
0: I want to uh, also read this quote by the court commissioner as another justification for denying your order. Quote, had you told me that this device was put on her computer after the divorce was filed, I would probably agree with you wholeheartedly. But something that was put on the computer during the time that they were married and may have forgotten about since that time, I don't find that argument credible. Unquote. I was just floored. Yeah, floored, but also not surprised, right? Shocked, but not surprised in that there's obviously many reasons that people would do that during the course of a relationship. If you are coercively controlling another person and, and it doesn't have to be because they're filing for divorce. In fact, if you do it when they're filing for divorce, that's, that's not coercive control potentially because they, they have not had other forms of surveillance already involved.
1: Right. And in place. Yeah, it was. What she failed to acknowledge or understand, too, is that even if he did put it on my computer before we separated, long before we separated, but he was using it. He was still actively using it after we separated. And that, according to our, our laws, like that, that matters. And that's actually the biggest. I shouldn't say the biggest, but it, that's a significant, significant issue with it. I mean, that that is where. That is that is where the stalking itself came into play, the post separation abuse. So it's, I mean, to to say that she was wrong is an understatement, <laughs> but that you know that's the de- that's the decision we ended up with, and unfortunately, it has cost me a significant amount of money because I had to replace a whole whole lot a whole lot of my electronics from the computer itself, but also I lost you know all the documentation that was on there, and I mean we're talking. I mean, for over four years worth of information, I can't access the the photos of my children that were on the computer. I can't access, you know, the, my journal from, I, I kept a journal about the abuse and I can't access that anymore. And my phone, I, you know, because of the type of program that he used, you know, he was able to get my logins and passwords for all of my accounts, including the passcode to my cell phone. and. I had to get a whole new cell phone and all new accounts for my phone as well for all of the software on my phone. I, we found out after the fact that um, he was able to access my iCloud and my phone backups from the cloud and my text messages and iMessages and he was able to listen into my phone calls on my old device even after we got the spyware off my computer so the tracking didn't stop. and. What was also interesting and not surprising um, was that he continued to do it <laughs> even after even after he found, after he was caught, he still continued to do it. And, you know, still to this day, we're getting questionable emails, questionable information about how do you know this information? And when we ask those questions, we don't get an answer. And, you know, including, <laughs> including information from the guardian at litem. So it's very... <laughs> very scary to think of the depth of what's actually happened and what's going on. i still trying every day to find out how I can make sure that my digitally I'm safe or that I, I have, um, you know, some amount of privacy. Um, but yeah, so it's Apple or PC. They're both they're both equally at risk and they're both they're both neither of them are entirely safe. When you look back on your time
0: with him from the time that the software was installed on your laptop until the time that you left, and he was surveilling you. When you look back on the time between when he first installed the software on your laptop and when you left him, what are some of the ways that he used the information from surveillance either against you, or, and how did he use it?
1: So before we separated, I didn't know, I mean, obviously I didn't know that the software was there, but... It was more after, after we had separated that I was able to pick up on things. For one thing, I, I had a safety plan um, for, for the entirety of our marriage, like since the, since the abuse started. I had been working with various different advocates and um, experts to have, constantly have a safety plan because you, I never knew, you know, when is he going to make good on all of his threats? And so I had a safety plan. And in hindsight, it was pretty scary to know that he knew all the details of my safety plan. He he knew he he knew where I was going to go. And that that was scary because as everybody, you know, as a lot of your listeners will know, that the most dangerous time is, you know, when you leave. And he he would have he would have known where I was gonna go. He would have known where I had, you know, what my backup plans were. Like there was it, it greatly greatly decreased my safety after we left and not only mine, but my kids as well. So, you know, that added the extra layer of terror to it.
0: Was there anything during that time looking back that you realized, oh, this was, he, he knew that I was talking to X person or Y person, and he brought this up or hinted at it in conversation later, and you thought it was odd? Were there those kinds of moments?
1: Because we're going back, it's hard to pick up on just because we're, we, it'd be such smaller details going back, you know, four years. I, I have since since then, um, you know, I have been going back through text messages and there there were some subtle things that I've picked up on through the text message history that I didn't pick up on at the time. Um, you know, like, um, one thing that I saw is that he was um, talking about um, bank balances, and I didn't pick up on it at the time. But I'm just like, how does he know about, you know, in hindsight, like, how does he know about that? Um, you know, because he accused me of he accused me one time of um, cheating on him because, and his rationale for that was because I hadn't closed out my bank accounts from before we were married. And um, it just struck me as odd. Like, how does, like, I never, I I don't remember telling him that I didn't close them out and he just brought it up. I'm like, well, how does he know that I didn't close those out? Um, So that's one thing that I've picked up on from going back through the documentation I do have. And other than that, I haven't picked up on too many. But I, I I remember during those times, like when he was around, like there was always a level of fear and also a level of of anxiety and just nervousness about what was going to happen next. Like, what else is he going to say? What else is he going to do? What insults are coming next? What's he going to do to the kids? Um, how is he going to? On a number of occasions, he's hurt the kids just to. Get me upset, or he would intentionally neglect them, and then blame his actions on me for for leaving the kids with him. You know, and any like they on more than one occasion, they sustained minor injuries because of his neglect. And then again, he would turn around and say, "Well, it's your fault for leaving them with me," and I'd be like, "No, I should be able to leave my children with their father, <laughs> and they should be safe with their father." And it's not my fault if they are not safe with their father. It was their father's fault for endangering them. And that that would start a number of fights. <laughs> in hindsight, it's harder to pick up on just because it was so long ago.
0: Yeah, I was just trying to explore if there were any tips that you could give to listeners who might suspect that something is going on, that they're being tracked in some way, or that information that they're getting is coming yeah, is questionable?
1: Um, I would say my advice is to listen to your gut and your intuition because it is probably right. You know, as women, we're taught from a young age that, you know, to, to really not trust what we're thinking and feeling. But really, um, if you think something's going on, there probably is. And I think for anybody who is in, in an abusive and a, course, a coercive relationship, Assume that there is something. There is some tracking going on because these, these apps and the software and key loggers and all the other, all the other. I mean, all the resources available um, to abusers are very easy to get, and they turn out they're they're not expensive. Some of them are free, and they can do a lot, a lot of damage. And it's very, very difficult to recover the the digital privacy that you once. Had or thought you had, and I would encourage people to take the utmost safety safety steps to um, ensure that this doesn't happen to them. You know, things like um, one thing I learned from this is that keeping your phone's location, um, the location settings on your phone, keeping them turned off um, does not necessarily mean that somebody cannot find you through your cell phone um, through the location. Um, there's multiple ways that somebody can do that. Um, And all they the only thing they need is your cell phone number, and they can find out where you are. And that was scary. Because again, having children with an abuser, you know, they you're, you have to maintain communication. And part of that is making sure they have your phone number. So I I would say that also, people should um, learn as much as they can about the common tactics of cyber stalking and learn about what the possibilities are because they they we really have very little privacy when it comes to if somebody if, if an abuser were to get a hold of any of your technology, it they really could um, really infiltrate everything in your life. And it's really hard to recover from.
0: Is there any statute in your area that would allow you to bring the evidence that you have to uh, uh, initiate a criminal case?
1: Um, there is, um, without a doubt, um, there certainly is. And on many different levels, um, and there's been, there's state and, um, federal laws that cover, um, these issues. Um, but the challenge is, is getting somebody to take them seriously. So, um, when I brought this information to the police, on the advice of the, the domestic violence advocates, the police didn't take it seriously. I, they didn't understand um, how it was abuse. And I got a lecture from the officer about how um, my abuser and I need to get along for the benefit of the kids. And I responded to that officer with, how can I get along with somebody who is determined to destroy me. Like, this is, I told him, you know, I asked him, I'm like, in any other criminal case, would you demand or lecture the victim to get along with the perpetrator? Like, I asked him, if somebody stole my car, would you tell me that I have to get along with the person who stole my car? (laughs) And he said, well, no, of course not. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm bringing information to you that shows domestic violence And I had to show him the statute as well to show him how it fit the definition of domestic violence and stalking. And he didn't understand. And so I tried to talk to his supervisor and the supervisor was not helpful. And um, the domestic violence shelter had to contact somebody, again, at the police station. And then it was taken a little bit more seriously. But I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't even fill out a police report. And so there was no chance of having any criminal charges brought because the police weren't helpful and the police didn't even see it as a problem. <laughs> they tried to tell me that, well, the computer is marital property, so he can do whatever he wants to it. And I'm like, he can do anything he wants to the property, but it is still stalking. It is still domestic violence. Hypothetically say there was another weapon, I, I, again, told the police, and like, if there was a weapon. Like, say there was a baseball bat, and the baseball bat is marital property, but he still hit me in the head with the baseball bat. Is it okay that he hit me because it was marital property? (laughs) And his answer to that was, well, no, of course not. I'm like, how is this different? And the officer didn't answer, but the police response had been, was a a pretty significant problem. Just trying to get them to take it seriously was not, not successful. So unfortunately, although they're There is definitely statutes against it because the police weren't helpful. There's nothing that can, there's nothing that can, more can be done on that side.
0: Have you gone to the district attorney's office to try to go directly to someone who might want to bring on a case?
1: I, we have, I have. However, the, where we are, the district attorney can't do anything without police cooperation. And the police aren't willing to do that, unfortunately. So um, for those reasons, it's the criminal case is not in process for the criminal aspect of it anymore.
0: Do you know what the statute of limitations is for this kind of situation for this case?
1: I, I do not. And actually, now that you say that, is something I should probably ask about. Um,
0: yeah. So maybe if, when there's a change of change in guard, you can bring back the case to the police and or to a different location because the jurisdiction. Um, it's not clear to me if you brought it to the jurisdiction of where the crime occurred, meaning where the computer was accessed from or where your laptop was located, which I'm understanding is two different counties.
1: It is. Um, and in addition to that, um, when it came to the, the stalking aspect of it, um, it, our uh, our state says that it doesn't matter where it happened and so hypothetically if he was accessing my computer from a different state or even a different country it still would have qualified under the stalking statute so that's that's one good thing about our statutes but unfortunately again without the the police taking it seriously and without the courts taking it seriously there's not there's not a whole lot we can do. And it, it's really terrifying to know that somebody can do something so extreme and something that somebody's life at risk to this, to this level, and they still don't take it seriously. And it's really unfortunate. And it's, it's it's scary for me. And I also, it's one thing that's really made me wonder is how you know, if something were to happen to me, I'm like, what would happen to my children um, without any um, protective parent involved in their life? Like how I just, I worry about their future and I worry, I worry a lot. <laughs> but yeah, so hopefully, hopefully something can come of it. I think another thing that worries me too is that, you know, even the high risk team, the shelter they were able to tell me all sorts of statistics as far as like how how the stalking about what he did put him in the highest category of risk of violence and they with the with the um, restraining order they wouldn't um, grant us the time to even have um, a domestic violence expert testify they they limited our time that was unfortunate too I think that if we would have been able to have a, a domestic violence expert testify, I think that maybe the commissioner would have decided differently, but unfortunately that's not how things went. So,
0: do you have any final words of advice for our listeners?
1: I would say to anybody in any kind of even remotely questionable situation to find a place, a safe place to research this topic and Learn as much as you can about it to find out to add the, to add digital safety to your safety plan, make sure that you can't be tracked and to make sure that you have everything backed up and that you have, you keep things in a safe place and to strongly encourage you to educate yourself about how to keep yourself safer on when it comes to any kind of technology.
0: Thank you so much, Ashley. I wish you the best in your ongoing divorce and safety and privacy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do it Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.